feeling in between, so, did he? You're feeling in between? You're feeling like, like a bandoni or you're feeling... The nature of the in-betweener. The nature of the in-betweener. In between jobs, in between yeah. meals, yeah, <laughs> in between in between naps. So what's the deal with the in-betweener? And that's what we're going to tackle today. And that's the question the Alter Rebbe is going to um, deal with in, in the section that we're learning today. Um, so just to give a little bit of a, a quick you know, rerun of, of uh, last week's class and um, just to catch us all up on where we're up to. Um, the first page, page and a half of Tanya is a... Uh, Talmudic analysis. That's pretty much what it is. The Alter Rebbe is bringing different quotes from Talmud and other areas of the Torah to kind of build up a case that what we have, what, what the Jewish world, not just we, you know, the, the, uh, it was not an uneducated approach before the Alter Rebbe came about. In other words, anyone that was a Talmud scholar, if you would ask them, hey, define for me the title Tzaddik. So they'd say, well, uh, you know, someone, when, when you measure their good deeds and their bad deeds, their good deeds outweigh the bad ones. And uh, if he's a real Talmud scholar, he would say, and by the way, don't think that a human is able to measure, that a human is able to weigh the good deeds and the bad deeds, because this type of judgment is only in the hands of God. Okay, so it's a bit more nuanced here. It's not like you can go and kind of write down everything you've done and kind of figure it out yourself. No, it's, uh, it's up to God, because there are some good deeds that outweigh many bad deeds, and there are some sins that outweigh many good deeds, so it's, uh, you know, it's not really up to us, it's not a human type of judgment. And if it asks him, so define the Bain and Neil. So, well, this is the guy that's hanging in the balance. That's in between, right? That's in between the good and the bad. And, uh, okay. So now, right away, the Altarebbe kind of blows that out of the park. And he says, there, there's a problem here. There, there's a real issue with defining these titles as they seem. And as um, some areas of the Talmud might indicate. Uh, with Tzadik, Russia, and Bain and uh, First of all, because of the oath that was administered to us uh, before we were born. What is the oath? Be a tzaddik, don't be a rasha. That's probably redundant, no? If, if you're a tzaddik, then you're not a rasha. So why, why do that? Right? What's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the redundancy here? But besides, I mean, the, the, part, of the part of the oath is that even if everyone's going to tell you you're a tzaddik, consider yourself a rasha. What's that supposed to mean? If everyone's considering you a tzaddik, that means you're a pretty good person. No? Last I checked, we don't go over to the people that are that are robbing and, and you know, causing, wreaking havoc and say, oh, it's a tzaddik. No. Usually you, you identify a tzaddik as someone that's involved in good works, someone that is doing what he needs to do, is keeping the mitzvahs, whatever you're able to observe on your own. So if to the casual observer, the person is considered a tzaddik, Okay, so chances are that even in God's judgment, he's also a tzaddik, right? He should consider himself a rasha. What for? Just to keep himself in check? There's other ways to keep people in check. What? A rasha? Rasha is a, a big word. To be humble. What? Like to be humble. To be humble. Well, the question is like this. To be humble, you really need to resort to such drastic measures as considering yourself, considering yourself an evil person. Rasha is a big word. Russia is a big word. Russia is a big word, but we learn that Russia it's not really a big word. It's, it's anything that's... That's what we're going to learn today. Hold on, hold on, one second. First, I have to appreciate the question. I mean, you know, the Russia, it's not... Yeah, what? It's hard to be honest. Well, there's all like 
isn't there something called like sadik gamor, like a real, like you know, there's levels. Right. Tzadik, so you could say the tzadik in Russia that the, the tzadik in Russia that we're speaking about now is. Um, We're saying that before before the rabbi wrote this, Tzadik mm-hmm. in Russia was just the fifty, you know, fifty-one versus forty-nine. Let's. I, I, I want to. Okay, one second. Hold on. No, no, no. One second. I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to build up a a, um, a case here, right? So when we're building up a case, you're, you're correct. You're correct in saying that there are different levels in Tzadik. There are different levels in Russia. So it could be what we're saying. What you're probably trying to say is that the Tzadik Gomor, the perfect Tzadik, should consider himself an imperfect Tzadik. I'm saying that, that I don't know, but the, the level that there is a level. Right. Of, so, so what you're, just what you're saying doesn't mean we're talking about the top guy. Okay. Yeah. Fine. So, so yes, you are correct that that when we say the term tzaddik, there are many different levels in tzaddik itself and levels in Russia, etc. However, what the Alter is, what I think the Alter is trying to do here, he 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 wants to kind of corner us into accepting a certain definition. In, in, in the general, in, in, in other words, how we define life in general. That, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm trying to say, which, which means like this. If you go up to someone and say, what's a tzaddik? You say, I'm a tzaddik. What do you mean? I'm a tzaddik. I, I do all the mitzvahs. I learn Torah. I give charity. Well, I'm a tzaddik. Right? Usually people don't, don't think too deeply into the nuances of these terms. Right? So the first thing the Alter Rebbe wants to do, as we mentioned last week, What's the question this person is asking right away at the beginning of Tanya? Do I need Tanya? What do I need this book for? What do I need Chassidus for? What do I need this entire pathway in the service of God for? I have the code of Jewish law. I'm keeping all the mitzvahs. Life is good. And when you read the code of Jewish law, and you read also Jewish, uh, I say, hashkafa, uh, which means like, you know, the Jewish perspective to life, you learn. That if you, and, and it says this in the Torah. You read the Torah. What does it say? If you're going to follow my ways, you're going to have a good life. And in the Talmud it says, if you're going to follow in God's ways, you're going to do all the mitzvot. You're going to go to Gan Eden. You're going to go to the, to the, the, you know, the world to come. You're going to have paradise and all of that type of stuff. So the question is, why am I making myself Meshuggah coming to a Tanya class? What? Huh? Oh, one second. One second. Hold on. Oh. So, so the Altadeva says like this. Now, what I need to do is, I need to convince you that Judaism is not limited to action. That's the point here. Action is the foundation. Action is the building. Action is everything, right? But it's not limited to that. If life was all just about action, yes, you could spend an entire lifetime mastering the actions of, 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 of Judaism. But, but that's not the reason or the only reason or that's not the entire picture of what Jewish living is about. What the Altarab is going to prove to us in this page and a half is that Jewish living, Jewish life, is about an internal journey. It's about a person having a relationship with God. The question is, how do you prove that? How do you prove that this is integral to Jewish life? And how do you prove that this is not just the position of Chassidus, the position of of the Hasidic movement, but no, this is actually a it's it's a proven point from the Talmud itself, from the foundations of Judaism itself. 
He's going to bring all these quotes from the Talmud and the stories from the, from, from the Bible to show us that there is no other way of understanding Jewish living. And that yes, if you're going to live your life doing all the action, that's wonderful. But you're going to be missing everything. You're missing the point. You'll be missing the point. So how does he do that? One second. How does he do that? He, 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 first of all, he brings a quote from the Talmud which deals with the whole purpose of life. Before we're born, before we're sent on this mission called living life in this world, the heavenly court gives us an oath. An oath is a big deal. And the oath says, be a tzaddik, don't be a rasha. What do these terms mean? If these terms just mean good guy, bad guy, someone who has more mitzvahs than sins, and don't be a guy that doesn't have more sins than mitzvahs, first of all, it's a redundant oath. Second of all, when it says, and even if the entire world tells you, be it, you're a tzaddik, you should be in your eyes as if you're a rasha. First of all, if you're in your eyes as a rasha, that means in your eyes, you should consider yourself as a person that violates the Torah. But why is that helpful? That's going to make you depressed. I'm a Torah violator. Well, and if it doesn't make you depressed, then we have a bigger problem. Violating the Torah doesn't upset you. It doesn't depress you. Of course, it should, of course it should. What's the problem with being depressed? Can't serve God if you're depressed. So the whole thing is just one challenge right away. It doesn't make any sense. Sure, you wanted to say something, or I already answered your question. No. Oh, I didn't. See. I, um, uh, when Adam was created, mm-hmm. did he was born a tzaddik? When Adam was created, was he born a tzaddik? Oh, Great he, question. Great question. Tzaddik. Look, when everyone is born, they're born with a clean slate, right? Ah, so they're born we, with a clean slate. Because we progress, we're losing it. Of course. But one second, I don't want to talk about original sin for the moment. Let's talk about that at a different time. But here's the deal. So right away, as we open up the book, the Alter Rebbe already confused us and already kind of, you know, we have to realize that Tzadik and Rosh is not so simple. Then he says, okay, let's go straight to the actual definitions. So he brings from the Talmud an interesting quote. And the Talmud says that there are five levels. There's a Tzadik V'toyvloi. Tzaddik, that is a good life. That's the terms that it, that's what it's discussing in the track de Brachot. A tzaddik that has a good life, a tzaddik that has a bad life, Russia that has a good life, Russia that has a bad life, and a Bainani. And the Talmud says, who's the tzaddik that has a good life? The tzaddik Gomer, right? The perfect tzaddik. Who's the tzaddik that has a bad life? The imperfect tzaddik. The Russia Vitoivloi is a Russia that's not a total Russia, and the Russia that has a bad life is a bad Russia. It's like a, a complete Russia. Then, he says like this, you know what, well, hold on. Okay, so, so what are these tzaddikim? It seems that all the Talmud is saying is that you have a tzaddik who experiences a good life and a tzaddik that experiences a bad life. But what are the words that the Talmud uses? It doesn't say tzaddik im chayim tovim, right? The tzaddik with good life. It says tzaddik v'toiv loy, and good to him. Tzadik and Ra Loi, bad to him. So the Zohar takes these words from the top and it says, I am going to teach you a new translation to this line. Yes, the Talmud is talking about a phenomenon of Tzadikim having a good life, good people having a bad life, and all that type of stuff. However, if you take the words, <clears throat> you translate them literally, you can understand them in a different light. Tzadik vera Loi means like this. You got a Tzadik who has Ra, bad inside of him, but 
that bad is loy is subservient to him. What does that mean? What does it mean you have a tzaddik who has bad and that bad is loy? So right away, the Altarab is already taking as a premise that this ra doesn't mean that he has sins. He can, uh, he can just, he's, he, he's able to overcome. Oh, one second, one second. So this ra doesn't mean that he has sins. And he's going to prove that a little bit later on, that if, if someone sins, even one sin, he's already considered a rasha. He's not already in the, in the level of a tzaddik. He'll prove that. But right away, the, the, he's telling us that what does the czar teach us? The Zohar teaches us that these five levels are not just an observation of what's going on in the world, that you have good people that have a bad life, or you have bad people that have a good life. No. We're talking here about what's going on inside the person, that it's possible for a person to be on the level of a tzaddik, to never sin, and yet contain within themselves ra, evil. And it doesn't stop there. He says, by the way, the Talmud says something very interesting about this. The Talmud says that what is the definition of a tzaddik? What's the difference between a tzaddik, a rasha, and a benini? It's not about their actions. It's not about their actions. It's about the inclination inside of them that is expressing an opinion. The tzaddik, this tzaddik is ruled by the Yetzir Toiv, by the good inclination. This rasha is ruled by the Yetzir Har, by the evil inclination. The benini, he's got both of them talking. Now this is a very important Talmudic quote to have in mind because this is actually going to lead us through many, many chapters in this, in, in this book. What's the Bainini? What's the definition of a Bainini? Not that he has half sins, half mitzvahs. And we'll prove soon that that can absolutely not be the, the, the meaning of, of, of this, uh, of the, of this uh, quote. But what does it mean? That you have a Yetzer Toiv, a good inclination. You have a Yetzer Hara, an evil inclination. And both of them are expressing an opinion. Both of them are able to say, uh, you know, they're able to... I'm running, huh? I'm running the show. Today. I'm running, exactly. I they're both able to claim it. What? I have the key to this. It's a fight yeah. every day. Exactly. The Benini is the fighter. He's the one that has to deal with all these things. Now, here's the real clincher. You know, there's a rule in the Talmud like this. If you want to um, know how to behave, just studying the books or studying from a master is not good enough. If you can observe the master behaving in a certain way, that you know is absolute. If you saw the master behaving in this way, that's for sure the halacha. Maise rav. In other words, if you see something happening, that is the biggest proof that that is the way you're supposed to behave. So what happened? We, 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 the Alter Rebbe brings an interesting conversation. There was a great Talmudic sage named Rabba. His full name was Rabba Bar Nachmeni. Rabba. And Rabba said, I am a Benini. Someone that's like me, that's a Benini. So his nephew, Abayah, says, who's also a great Talmudic sage, he said, if you're the Benini, what are we? That means we're all Rishayim, we're all evil people, we're all Rishayim, and a Rasha is considered dead. So like basically the, uh, the, the expression was, if you're the Benini, you didn't leave us life. You know, we, have, we have no chance at all. So, so what's the... the okay, so, then, so here up to... Um, to understand the aforesaid clearly, um, we, we started this last week, but let's start again from inside on page two, on the right column, the, the first paragraph, the first paragraph that begins on the right column. To understand all the aforesaid clearly, an explanation is needed, as also to understand what Job said. Now what did Job say? 
Now the Talmud says like this, that Job argued with God, he wanted to absolve the entire world from all judgment. How, what was his argument? He said, God, master of the universe, you have created righteous men and you have created wicked men. His argument was that, you had to, that God decided at the beginning of creation that not everyone is going to be righteous. There's going to be righteous people and there's going to be wicked people, right? And so what's his argument? How could you punish the wicked? I mean, you had decreed that there's going to be wicked people. But right away the altar says that that doesn't make any sense though. The, the argument that it has no premise. Why? Because it contradicts a different premise in Torah, which is that everyone has free choice. So while it's true, it was preordained from the beginning of creation that there are going to be evil people, there are going to be wicked people, there are going to be Rishayim. But no one said that this specific individual had to be a Rasha. No one said this person had to be wicked. In fact, as he says, for it is not preordained whether a man will be righteous or wicked. And this is referring to a different Talmudic passage, which states that before a child is born, God determines everything that will happen to the child, whether it be tall, short, strong, weak, smart, stupid, beautiful, ugly, all of that. The one thing that is not determined is the moral disposition of the child. Will the child be righteous or wicked? So the whole premise of Job's argument to God falls away. So what was he saying? What did he mean when he said you created righteous and you created wicked? Job was not some, some Tom, Dick, and Harry. Job was Job. There's a book in the Bible named for him. There's a book in the Bible about his story and his conversation with God. He was a prophet. So what's his argument here? You created the wicked, you created the righteous. But God doesn't do that. Is there something else at play here? Is there perhaps a different definition to wicked and righteous? And definitely there is. And therefore, from now on, we're not going to say the words wicked and righteous. Because wicked and righteous come with a lot of baggage. Haman the wicked, right? Well? No rest for the wicked. Well, from now on, we're only going to use the terms Russia, Tzaddik, and Benini. That's it. That's what we're going to have to use. And hopefully, from now on, we'll, we, will, we will always um, associate uh, to these three words the Alter Rebbe's definition for these three words. So, <clears throat> in order to do that, we're going to tackle what does a Benini mean. It is also necessary, we're continuing here on the, on the same, same, same the second paragraph, it is also necessary to understand the essential nature of the rank of the Benini. Surely that cannot mean one whose deeds are half virtuous and half sinful. For if this were so, how could Rabba err in classifying himself as a Benini? If the Benini was based off of actions, so then Rabba was simply lying. It's a lie. For Rabba to call himself a Benini is, is is a terrible lie. Let's not say the word lie in connection with Rabbah. It's a terrible mistake. But a mistake that, that Rabbah made such a mistake to consider himself a Benini. In order to be a Benini, you have to have a few sins at least. He didn't have any of those. How do I know that? For it is known that he never ceased studying the Torah. Rabbah was a person. Not only he kept all the 613 mitzvot. Not only was a master teacher. Not only did he do all these things, but he, his lips never stopped reciting words of Torah. 
to the point, so much so, that the angel of death could not overpower him. What's the story? Ready for a cool story? So here's the deal. Rabbi Bar-Nachmeni, the Talmud says like this, that Rabbi Bar-Nachmeni, towards the end of his life, um, so someone wanted to uh, get him in trouble. So he went to the king, and he said that Rabbi is causing major um, damage to the king's treasury. Why? 12,000 12, men don't pay taxes two months a year because of this man. What were they referring to? The times of the pre-Talmud, in other words, before the Talmud book was written. So um, throughout the three, four hundred generations from when the Mishnah was concluded until the Talmud was concluded, um, the, many Jews would come together to the great Talmudic masters to study twice a year, the month before Rosh Hashanah and the month before Pesach. So Elul and Adar, that was called Yarchei Kala. It was like the, the big gathering of all the sages from the from the generation that would come together and they would focus on a different tractate every year. So Rabba lived in a town, in, in a, a town, a big city, I guess, uh, in Babylon, um, in Bavel. It was called Pumpadisa and that was one of the centers of Torah. Twice a year, about 12,000 scholars would come and study together with him. So they didn't work for those two months of the year. You don't work, you don't pay taxes, right? Because you don't make anything. So this guy kind of... Uh, presented this to the king as someone who's uh, causing a lot of trouble to the, to the government. Anyway, Rabbi became a wanted man. Uh, he, he, he started running away. He went into hiding. It's actually a very dramatic story. At one point, he was back in Pumpadissa hiding in an inn, and the king's messengers came, and they were about to see Rabbi, and basically, someone, they offered them a drink, and they drank, and then and they pulled away, like, the, you know, the... the, the the tray that they brought the drink from, the man's head was turned backwards. Like a miracle happened so that he shouldn't see Rabbah. So the people in the inn, they came to Rabbah and said, what should we do? I mean, this is the guy, this is the king's man, you know. So he said, whatever, give him another drink and he'll be healed. And he was, he was healed. And the guy said, I know that Rabbah is in this uh, inn. You know, if, if something like this happened to me here, he must be here. Um, so, so he told them, it was a whole thing that he, he said, look, tell Rabbah, I'm not going to tell anyone where he is, um, but I'll only hold the secret if the king catches me and kills me right away. But if he's going to torture me, I'm going to say the secret. Anyway, Rabbah ran away and he was you know, hiding in the marsh or something. He was sitting on a tree stump and he was studying. Then the Talmud says that an argument broke out in the heavenly court. What was the argument? There was a discussion about the laws of Tzara'as. Tzara'as is like this miraculous leprosy uh, that would that would afflict the person if they spoke Lashon Hara, whatever different, and, and, and it would render them uh, ritually impure, a very severe, severe ritual impurity. Anyway, so not to get into all the details and intricacies of the question, but the argument was like this. Tsaras, the definition of Tsaras is that you have a white spot on your arm, on, on, on your body, a white spot, and there's a white hair inside that whiteness, inside the white spot. The question was like this. If the white hair came before the whiteness, is the person tahor or tameh? Is he, is he pure or ritually impure? There was an argument. God said one thing, and the heavenly court said another thing. Argument between God and the heavenly court. So, um, we have to know the halacha. So, God said, there's, the, what, there's one person that is a master in the laws of tzaras. And who is that? Rabbah. 
Rabbah, who's down there on earth, he is the master. So uh, we got to bring him up here in order that he should uh, d- determine what the halacha is. So who brings people up there from down here? The angel of death. Very good. That's the messenger. So they send the angel of death to go and get Rabbah because the heavenly court needs Rabbah's help. So, so he comes to Rabbah who is sitting on the tree stump and studying Torah. Can't catch him. Why? Because when a Jew is studying Torah, Torah is a is a protection, and the evil and the and the angel of death can't touch someone who is involved in the study of Torah very intensely. <clears throat> what, what does he do? So finally, the angel of death he he caused a, a, a huge wind to you know to, to blow, and it made a lot of noise in the trees, and Rabbah thought that the noise was like a platoon. A king, you know, from the king's army coming to catch him. So Rabbi stopped learning and he prayed to God and he said, I'd rather die than being captured by the king. As soon as he said that, boom, the Malach Amavis, the angel of death was able to get, to get him. Yeah? Nice story. L- listen to the story here. Rabbi was untouchable by the angel of death because he was studying the whole time. You want to tell me this guy had a few sins in his pocket where he was able to say, I'm a Benini? For sure not. This story itself tells us without a shadow of a doubt two things. Number one, Rabbah is not lying. Second of all, that Rabbah was definitely not a Benini in the sense that he has half sins and half half half, half uh, mitzvahs. Yeah? So what's a Benini? Before I opened the Tanya, I thought I had it down pat. The Benin is the guy that when they judge him in the heavenly court, he's got half mitzvahs, half sins. Let's see if you can get yourself some more mitzvahs to tip the scales, to turn you into a tzaddik. Look at the story of Rabbah. Rabbah made a statement. He's definitely not lying, but it doesn't make any sense. He was such a tzaddik that the angel of death couldn't get him. He was such an extreme tzaddik that he wouldn't even stop saying words of Torah. We're going to see soon how integral that is to his definition of not being a Russia. Right? So, so, so what's the deal here? Furthermore, now the Altar gets even more deeper into proving to us that the level of Benini is someone that has absolutely no sins. Furthermore, at what stage can a person be considered a Benini if when a man commits sins, he is deemed completely wicked, even one sin. The person does a sin, he's called a rasha. But when he repents afterward, he is deemed completely righteous. How many sins does one have to do in order to be considered a rasha? He says, he brings a proof from the Talmud. Even he who violates a minor prohibition of the rabbis is called rasha. As it is stated in Yavamis and in Nida, Yavamis in chapter 2, Nida in chapter 1. Moreover, even he who has that. So, so we're talking here about a minor rabbinic prohibition. Right? So there, there are mitzvahs, there, there are prohibitions that come directly from the Torah. Then there are prohibitions that were added on by the rabbis in order to serve as a safeguard to, to the Torah. Right? So for example, on, on Shabbos, so something that's like prohibited on Shabbos, not allowed to turn on a light, turn off a light, strike a match. Not only not to strike a match, there's a rabbinic prohibition of moving matches. You're not allowed to move the matches. The matches are muktzah. 
I don't know if that's considered a minor rabbinic prohibition. The point is, it's a rabbinic prohibition. It's not a, it's not a, 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 a Torah prohibition. So even someone who violates a minor prohibition, someone moved the matches, Russia. That's what, that's what the Talmud says. That's the Russia already. Moreover, not just that, even he who has the opportunity to forewarn another against sinning and does not do so is also called a Russia. If someone sees a fellow Jew sinning and that Jew has the opportunity to stop this person from sinning and he turns away and he says, it's not my business or he won't listen to me anyway, that's also called a Russia. The tractate, Shavuot, chapter 6, that's what it says there. <clears throat> All the more so, he who neglects any positive law, which he is able to fulfill. For instance, whoever is able to study Torah and does not. So any person that at any point during his lifetime, at any point during the day or night, that had the opportunity to study Torah, and instead of studying Torah, they picked up the New York Times and read it, regarding whom the sages have quoted, we're on the next page, page 4, because he has despised the word of the Lord, that soul shall be utterly cut off. Our sages basically say, they associate this concept of despising God's word to someone who had the opportunity to study Torah and instead decided to take a smoke. Instead decided to go golfing. Decided to watch television. Or decided to read a joke book. Or decided to read a book about geography. Or decided to sit and have a conversation with his wife. Instead of learning. Russia. You're already at Russia. How are you all feeling now? No bueno? So one second. So let's go back for a moment to the, to the, to the oath that God made us take. He said, even if everyone tells you be a tzaddik, eh, consider yourself a rasha. How do you think you'll feel then if you consider yourself a rasha? No bueno, right? I just proved to all of you, the altar just proved to all of us that opened up this book that uh, <laughs> tzaddik forget about. Probably rasha. In a, in a big way. It is thus plain that such a person, a person who was able to study Torah, and instead of studying Torah did something else, it is plain that this person is called a Rasha, more than he who violates a prohibition of the rabbis. Studying Torah every single moment of the day is a mitzvah, is, is a Torah mitzvah. It's a mitzvah from the, from, from the Torah. It's a biblical mitzvah. Moving matches on Shabbos is a rabbinic prohibition. We see someone moving matches on Shabbos, hey, Rasha, hey! This dude. And, and yesterday, and today, etc. You spent all that time kibitzing. You're for sure a Rasha, right? <clears throat> If this is so, and it seems that it has to be so, the Alter Rebbe just brought us about five, five proofs from the Talmud itself that you know that to be a Russia is not too hard. Actually, it's quite, it's quite inevitable, right? Quite inevitable, huh? If this is so, we must conclude that the Benini is not guilty even of the sin of neglecting to study the Torah. Oh. If you neglected to study Torah for one minute, you're already a Russia. That means that when it comes to actions, the Benini is on a level that he did not, he's not even guilty 
of neglecting to study Torah for a moment. Do you know anyone that can fit that category? Rabba. Rabba could fit that category. Rabba was learning every single moment to the point that the angel of death could not catch him. Hence, oh, very good. Hence, Rabba could have mistaken himself for a Bainani. In other words, like this. Some might argue and say, Rabba was trying to be an onof. He was trying to be humble. And to say, I'm not a tzaddik, I'm a Bainani. Being humble is a wonderful thing. Lying is not a, not a good thing. Okay? So, being humble is wonderful. But if the definition of Benini is that you have some sins, Rabbah could say such a thing. <laughs> Rabbah could consider, put himself in the category of Benini, which means uh, that you have half sins. Like, what, what is this? But here we just proved, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that to become a Rasha, one only needs to miss one minute of Torah study. So, boom, you're already a Rasha. That means, in order to be in the category of Benini, Oh boy, not only you have to have 51% mitzvahs, you have to have 100% mitzvahs. Not just 100% action-related mitzvahs, 100% of your life had to be dedicated to the constant study of Torah. That's the level of Benini. Because once you miss a moment of Torah study, you're already at Asha. Alright, so Rabba's off the hook. He could have mistaken himself as a Benini, right? Then what's the next question? What's the difference between a Benini and a Tzaddik? <laughs> right. right? If Rabbi could mistake himself as a Benini, so what, what actually is the difference? There's definitely a difference. One is a Tzaddik, one is a Benini. Well, what is that? Right now, the Alter Rebbe already proved to us that it's got nothing to do with action. Nothing. It can. Like people, like oh. they can be praying and you can be doing all the stuff and just going through the motions. Do you think a person that studies Torah every moment of the day when it comes to prayer would just be going through the motions? Probably not. Probably not. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that someone who's studying Torah every single moment of the day is on a higher level than just being able to open up a siddur and go through it by rote. Right? And we're going to learn, actually, that the Benini is a master prayer. I don't know. Davener, right? It's a master Davener. This guy Davin's like, oof, made it. He's, he's, he's a great Davener, right? The, the point the Altar is going to tell us, and he's going to say this uh, with, with more uh, emphasis in a moment, his point is going to be, my friends, there's a lot going on beyond the mitzvah observance and the Torah study. There's a lot more going on over here. <clears throat> Okay, back to the definition. So I thought you said for a second, a few moments ago, that most of us might think we're Bainanese because we don't do everything. Most of us? Most of us think are probably the, would be the, in the category of Russia. Russia. Okay. Most of us are in the category of Russia. And if you feel bad, if you feel bad, let me tell you the following story. There was a great chassid. His name was Rabhilal Paricher. Rabhilal Paricher, he lived uh, early 1800s. He, he, he heard the Alter Rebbe once, but he became a chassid by the second Rebbe and the third Rebbe. He was considered like a half Rebbe. I mean, he was like a very, very high-level person. He was a brilliant scholar. He was very, very uh, careful with mitzvah observance, like to a crazy degree. Very. Anyway, so he says like this, Before I studied Tanya, 
I thought I was such a tzaddik that God is going to have to build a special Gan Eden for me, a special paradise for me. I mean, I'm a real tzaddik, you know. <clears throat> then he said like this. Then I learned Tanya, and probably after he got past a page and a half, he realized, huh, Halavaya was a Benini. And this became a quote that the, the Rebbe's would quote a lot, Halavai Benini. In other words, this is not a judgment on people's character, etc. If you open up the time, you walk away, oh yeah, I'm a Russia, you're in good company. 100% of the world is in the category of Russia, basically. And a little sliver of a, who knows what, Benini is, is something that you can maybe count on your fingers. How many people are on the level of Benin and Tzadik? Forget about it. I mean, you'll have Tzadikim, but I'm saying it's, it's a whole different, whole different level. But it's not about, oh, when will I become a Tzadik one day? When will I become a Benin one day? The Altar just gave us a gift. What's the gift? Life is so much more exciting than just mastering the actions. Life is so, there's so much more to life. There's so much more, the, the, the mission in life, it's not just about making sure you do the do's and don't the don'ts. It's interesting because through history and those books they read about the Lubavitcher, you know, those two books, I forget what they were called. The memoirs, yeah. Memoir. And, and just the philosophy. It's interesting because so you could say Chabad is more inclusive and you need, you know, everybody has, you know, do one mitzvah to tip the scale, blah, blah. And then we looked at the Mishnachim and, and, and they were, oh, we know lots of things. We know all the stuff. We know we do all the mitzvahs. We know Talmud backwards and forward by heart. But then we talk with this whole definition of Rasha and in between her and the, the tzaddik is much more strict from the Chabad side than it is from the Nagdim side. They're just saying, oh, like you said, oh, fifty-one percent you're a tzaddik, you know. And they would look down on the people who didn't. And then, you know, what I'm saying it's like a. It, Yet the strength is really on the other end. The, the definition is much stricter on the Chabad end. You know what I mean? is saying something very important, that it's important to... Culturally speaking, right? Culturally speaking, it might seem that Chabad are very flippant with, with uh, defining people, you know, as you mentioned. You know, what, what's Chabad's mantra? Do just one mitzvah. That's all I'm asking. That's all we're. That's all we're saying. That's all we're marketing. Do one mitzvah, put on tefillin. Put on tefillin. Like Shabbos candles. Like Shabbos candles. Eh, just do one mitzvah. <clears throat> then others will say, "What? Well, you're just selling Judaism short. You're selling it cheaply like that. Eh, just one mitzvah. One mitzvah. This that." But then you ask the. There's actually a conversation that once happened between a chassid and a non-chassid. A chassid commented about a certain uh, great rabbi. He said, that person, he was a Benini. He's a Benini. So the one who was not a chassid said, how can you say such a thing about this rabbi? This rabbi was a tzaddik. So the chassid said, all right, come here. We don't speak the same language. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible, can you imagine in your mind, that this great rabbi, for two minutes in his life, did not study Torah? Yeah, he was a person. Probably. So the chassid said, I have a higher opinion of this rabbi than you do. Me, with the Hasidic definition of Benini, has a much, much higher opinion of this rabbi than you with your definition of tzaddik. What's, what does this mean? A lot of people have a problem with Chabad. 
what's the problem? No one has a problem with 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 uh, smiling people and a welcoming a welcoming Chabad house and a good kugel and uh, no one has a problem with that. Everyone's happy with that. But what's the what's the problem with Chabad? Chabad is very confusing, very very confusing. On the one hand, we we, we welcome everyone. On the other hand, we're like we're we're crazy strict about certain things. Well, what's going on? And I don't blame anyone that's confused by Chabad. You know why? Because Chabad means wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Okay, this is this is what Chabad means. It's the acronym of those three words. And the whole attitude of Chabad, the whole makeup of Chabad, the whole concept of Chabad, is based on a very deep intellectual curriculum, which starts with Tanya. It doesn't end with Tanya. It starts with Tanya. You go through Tanya, you've got thousands, literally thousands upon thousands of pages of the rest of Hasidus that was taught by all of the Rebbes. I want hundreds of books, maybe even more than that, right? And everything about the, the, the attitude of Chabad, the fact that we value one mitzvah, and the fact that we define a person that does even one sin as already a Rasha, which seems to be quite opposites over here. Like, I understand. Yeah. You got to allow yourself to learn and understand the curriculum called Chabad. By the time you'll finish Tanya, you'll be like, I get it. I totally get it. When the rabbi is marketing one mitzvah, they're not saying there isn't the rest of the 612. When the rabbi is so happy that the Jew put on for the first time, he's not calling him a tzaddik, not in a million years. And when the rabbi looks at a great rabbi in history and says he's a benini, he knows what he's talking about. He's not putting this person down. On the contrary, he has the greatest respect and, and reverence for this person. Because a Benin is not a dime a dozen. Mm. In fact, the definition of Benini was something that was reserved for the Rebbe's to define. Only a Rebbe was able to point to a person and say, this person is a Benini. Otherwise, you have no idea if the guy's a Benini. Chances are he's a Rasha. Probably. High chance. And guess what? Who cares? No one cares about the casual observer's definition of that person. Because it's irrelevant. Because these titles of Tzadik, Rosh, and Benini are completely beyond the, the, beyond the, the capacity for a casual observer to define. Rabbi, yeah. I'm just thinking this. Now, there were Tzadiks. Tzadiks that had a good life. Oh, we're not talking about that anymore. Tzaddik and good life, that's not part of the conversation anymore. From now on, it's Tzaddik and only has good inside of him. Tzaddik, he's got a little bit of ra, a little bit of evil inside of him. We, by the way, we're going to redefine what good and bad is, by the way. We just redefined Tzaddik, Rosh, and Benini. We're going to redefine good and bad. The reason I'm asking is because you said this guy Rabba said, <clears throat> I'm a Benoni. He didn't say I am. Well, I am like. I'm like a Benoni. Yeah. I study whatever. He says, I'm, a, I'm like a baby. Words of Torah all the time. So, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, I was thinking about when he well, had Tzaddikim, for sure. By the way, Rabba was a Tzaddik. Yeah, okay, so Rabba was a Tzaddik. He'll explain in a bunch of chapters what he meant when he said, I'm like a Benini. But he was a Tzaddik. No, because I say, Abraham, all these people, Abraham had three angels over and prepared a meal. He wasn't studying Torah. He was doing, giving what God said. He was doing a nice thing. But he stopped. I'm saying... We're talking absolute here, it sounds like, in some of these definitions. So first of all, doing a mitzvah is not called a violation of studying Torah. If you're busy with a mitzvah, you can't study Torah at the moment. So fine, that's not a problem. 
right? The, the thing over here is if a person is able to study Torah and instead he does something that's not a mitzvah, right? Instead he does something that, uh, whatever, you don't have to do that, right? <clears throat> anyway, we'll stop over here uh, for this class. I know we're, we're going at snail pace, but I hope we're, we're learning something new every time. Um, so, yeah, we'll begin on page four, um, where it says the 23rd and the 25th of Kislev, uh, as for the general say. So, at least what we're walking away with today is that the Alter Rebbe proved to this person, he said, if you thought that you're already a tzaddik before opening up this book, and because you're a tzaddik, you don't need to have a new master to teach you a way to serve God, I think we've opened up our eyes to realize that, no, 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 halavai, we were on the level of a benini. Oh, and that means that the title of this book is actually the best title it could be. Because after hearing this new definition of Bainini, or knowing what it's not, knowing that the Bainini is someone that is on a level that he literally speaks Torah every single moment, oh, I'd love to be a Bainini. This is the book for me. In other words, this is the book that says, hey, you're going to read this book. This is going to teach you the path to reach a level of Bainini. I never dreamt I would reach such a level. That I'll be able to study Torah every single moment of the day? I'm sold. And I hope you are too. Alrighty, we will be in touch next week.